This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Here's the figure the postdoc made 14 years ago, and then here's the one the other grad student made last year, and here's one I put together last night in my hotel room. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we learn about how to make and present a scientific poster from real-life poster presenters. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 187. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. Good evening, Josh. Good to see you. Good to see you. We are continuing to relive the past on this week's show. <laughs> That's the whole description of this podcast, isn't it, Josh? <laughs> I guess it is. I guess it is. Well, I'm excited, Dan, that we get to hearken back to the really good time that we had at the ASCB conference. And I had a lot of fun listening back to our previous show, where we heard tips for making the most out of the conference and looking forward to sharing a lot of this footage that you got uh, bugging people at their posters. Yeah, this is the, I wouldn't say bugging, first of all. Oh, no, I, I, po- I pulled them. I pulled them. They you did? Okay. Yeah, I yeah. see. I see. This is the American Society for Cell Biology uh, Cell Bio 2022 meeting that we went to. This is in Washington, D.C., uh, back in December, Josh. And we hung out at the Promega booth and we had a good time. I walked around, just, I, I need to move. You know, it was hard for me to stand there and wait for victims to come over to speak to. So I walked around to posters and we'll hear some of that later, Josh. But you said we, this episode is about reliving the past. The ethanol that you brought has really crossed a boundary for me. So can you tell everybody what we're drinking tonight? Sure thing, Dan. And this was completely unintentional. So I love when things work out. This is the Kentucky Bourbon Barrel Strawberry Ale from Lexington Brewing and Distilling Company. And Dan, longtime listeners of the show will know you have some Kentucky roots. That's right. That was my alma mater. I went to University of Kentucky for my Bachelor of Science in Agricultural Biotechnology uh, as a young high school student who was fascinated by the images in my biology textbook about genetic engineering, I thought, oh, I need a biotechnology degree. This is the thing that's going to make me happy in life. And so I went to University of Kentucky, studied biotechnology. And this distillery brewery must have existed while I was there. I think it opened in 1999. Yeah, we should mention uh, University of Kentucky, where you went, was in Lexington, correct? Where this it is in Lexington, yeah. So I know the city, certainly know the campus. And uh, this... This distiller, you know, this was the rise of the independent distiller and actually really more the, the rise of the independent brewer. I don't think independent distilling had cropped up much, but there was a lot of distilling in Kentucky prior to this. And so uh, this brewing company opened up and it is, I, I think part of their claim to fame is they have aged their beers in bourbon barrels. And I'm sure we've had bourbon barrel aged beers in the past, haven't we? I'm sure we have, Dan. I'm sure we have. Is it a style that you like, Josh? Typically, no, Dan. Because you picked this out. Yeah, and you know, it may be surprising for listeners to hear that I do not normally enjoy a bourbon barrel 
aged beer because on the very last episode, Dan, I talked about how much I really like bourbon. But one thing I don't like, Dan, in ethanols is I don't like a what would be called a fortified ethanol, like a right. like a port or a, a sherry, like a really sweet, dense ethanol. I don't know another way to say it. I typically don't go I gravitate towards high gravity beers. This is an eight percent beer, and typically these beers that are aged in bourbon barrels, they tend to have a more uh, syrupy, fortified flavor. So while I like bourbon, I don't always like a bourbon barrel beer. And that's fair. Do you, is this one okay for you? I, I The first drink I took was just the high gravity. It tasted sweet and the ethanol came forward. And I said to myself, there's no strawberry fa- flavor in this. But now I'm starting to pick it up. Yeah, I think I can pick up some strawberry. And, you know, I don't really dislike this. You know, I almost wonder, I think the fruitiness does come through. And I was I was trying to imagine that I wasn't drinking this beer in a pint glass. I have mine poured into a pint glass, and it is a beautiful amber it's a nice color. color. Um, I was trying to imagine that I didn't, I wasn't drinking this out of a, a pint glass like a traditional beer. But what if I poured this over ice and put a lime wedge, maybe sprinkled some strawberry slices in it? You just lost me. You were going to pour it over ice? <laughs> well, if I think about it that way, and then think about what I'm tasting. I'm realizing I am really getting a very fruit forward f- tasting beer. And here. by pouring it over ice, you get the, the flavor of crimes against humanity. What are you talking about? <laughs> I can say, Dan, I've actually never had beer over ice. Um, Fair. You take but, your beer neat, as we say. But that may be an experiment for a future show. <laughs> well, I look forward to not being on that show. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out. So the marketing speak on the website for the brewer is, in 2006, we filled freshly decanted bourbon barrels with Kentucky Ale, our earliest craft beer iteration. Initially considered experimental, the resulting barrel-aged brew was a Kentucky bourbon barrel ale that has now become one of our most popular beers with an ever-growing fan base. So this is 2006. I was long gone. But one of the things that struck me about the website was I noticed that the founder of the brewery and his son, who now runs it, both have PhDs. And the son has a PhD in solid-state fermentation. So I feel like this is going to have to be a follow-up episode where we find out what that is. Uh, that seems relevant. Seems really relevant. He's, he's got some publications I was able to find. It's, I'm excited about this. He did? He had publications? He sure did. Maybe we can get him on the show. I hope so, Josh. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, Josh, tell us about our sponsors this week. We would like to, once again, thank our friends at Promega. It is important to prioritize your health and your well-being during graduate school. Habits that promote a healthy mind and body, like exercising and eating right, are crucial to success both in and out of the lab. Promega has resources for you to explore on how to find the right lab-life balance. You can check all of that out at promega.com slash hellobalance. All right, Josh, with that... Let's go listen to all the people I annoyed at the ASCB Cell Bio 2022 conference. All right, Josh. So I talked to a number of people at the poster session. So I walked around with our mobile recorder. I looked for people that were not right in the middle of actual important conversations 
so that I didn't interrupt scientific uh, discourse. But I asked, tell me a tip. Tell me about something that somebody who is preparing or presenting a poster needs to know. And I got a lot of information. I tried to group them a little bit by subject. And so the first piece of advice or the first section of advice is really about how to lay out a poster, how to structure it, even before you think about putting graphics and text in place. Well, let's take a listen. My name is Sarah Gordon, and I'm a fourth-year undergrad at Oglethorpe University in Atlanta, Georgia. And one tip I would give for making a poster is being creative with dimensions for financial reasons as well. If it would cost you less to be able to print it in sections, so instead of having a big 44 by 48, you can cut it in half and have it be printed for free potentially at your university or for cheaper at other places. And that's what I did with my poster. Chopped it up into two sections, and then on my board, I pinned it together. And it looks great, and it was probably easier to transport. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you. I'm Deborah Murray, and my tip is set your PowerPoint up first with the dimensions for the poster as required by the conference. I waited until 10 p.m. before I checked and I realized I needed to make these dimensions different. Therefore, I had to start all over from scratch. So don't make my mistake. <laughs> and, and where do they post dimensions? That's usually on the website for the society? Yeah. They actually email it to you. And, you know, I'm bad about reading emails <laughs> and all those details. So this is one time when you want to do that. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I'm joined by Omar... Omar Quintero Carmona, associate professor at the University of Richmond, longtime fan of Dan. (laughs) (laughs) And tell us your advice for for poster schemes, I think you described it. Yeah, so in thinking about how you're presenting the poster, I, I try to help my students, I work mostly with undergraduates, design it in a way where if you're only reading the section headings, you get the gist of the whole story. So... In a sense, they're sort of like topic sentences, but the entire set of section headings on their own tells the full story, and then you can fill in the details later. I'm going to need to take a photograph of this so that I can put it on the website, but you've got these large, full-color bars across, and they have white text inside, so it's very clear where the divisions are and also what that division is talking about. Yeah, yeah, so in a way, so I'm old enough at this that I grew up in the era where when you made posters, each panel was an individual 8.5 by 11 piece of paper. And I've essentially kept that organization for large poster printing. I love it. And I I think I I appreciate the dark bar with the white text because I think it stands out a little better. I'm looking at other posters around these. It's harder to see the contrast in a black on white text where it's very full of black on white text. Thanks, Omar. You're welcome. Good luck, Dan. All right, that was some some interesting stuff. I learned some new things that I don't think I thought about back when I was last making posters. How did you do posters? I remember when we were in grad school, you kind of had the 8.5 by 11 printout, and you would put it on a piece of construction paper and tack it <laughs> to the board. Did you do some bigger format posters? Yeah, I think, Dan, we might have been towards the very end of that type of poster, Uh, but I definitely remember our first year of grad school, 
making the poster with the printed out paper on the, the cardboard backing. And honestly, I don't think that's really that bad of a way to do it because it's very modular and you can take all of those individual pieces and put them into a folder and carry them with you in your backpack. And then if you mess up one of them or you update one figure, you just toss that one and make one new panel versus printing this giant piece of paper. You realize one thing's changed and now you have this expensive and, and cumbersome edit to make. Make a blanket out of it. Yeah, and I think you heard that in some of the the advice that we heard. You know, when Sarah said, instead of making a 44 by 40 poster, make two smaller sections. And I think Omar talked about how his headings are really based on those individual 8.5 by 11 sheets. And so I think there's something to be said for that smaller format, thinking in chunks, thinking in visual chunks before you try to put together this whole poster, even if it ends up printed on a large format, if you can think about it in sections, that helps you to maybe design it a little bit more easily. I think that's really smart. I can remember in the early days using Adobe Illustrator, and I think that may have been because... (laughs) I think that may have been because... I thought that seemed more professional to use it. It is. I mean, it it really does. It looks great. It really does look good. It's just a huge learning curve. Yeah, that is totally true. And I think uh, at some point around my third or fourth year of graduate school, I realized the juice was not worth the squeeze, as they say. And, you know, for the type of for the type of project of putting a typical scientific poster together, I could accomplish mostly the same thing with PowerPoint in about half the time. And so at some point I switched over to to PowerPoint. Well, hopefully you didn't do what Deborah did uh, and and you set your size of your PowerPoint properly the first time because one of the rules of graphic design is do not stretch images and text horizontally or vertically. I mean, everything has to scale in both dimensions. The moment you start to stretch a picture in one dimension, it looks really funny. So try to avoid that at all costs. Yeah, I did try to remember to do that first, is change my page size uh, first to whatever the the dimensions were for the conference. Um, you know, Dan, one thing that I think is cool, and I'd be interested to know from other folks if this really is the future, um, where I work, Dan, we host a lot of conferences And we have switched over in the last year, post-pandemic, to these electronic posters. And so we actually uh, work with a vendor and we bring in these 55-inch monitors, television panels on wheels, and all of the presenters, um, they put their poster together digitally, and then when they get When it comes time for their poster session, they can click on the monitor, select their name, and boom, their poster pops right up. And so one advantage of that is they can edit their poster right up until five minutes before the poster session, and they can make any minor edits, which is what we talked about was an advantage of the the mini 8.5 by 11 panels. But also, you don't have to carry that tube with you on the plane. I love that suggestion, Josh. Uh, I would say it's mind-blowing. It's it's like... Yeah, we have cheap technology. You can go buy a TV screen for a few hundred dollars. And so university could have a bunch of these mounted on wheels, roll them out. And why shouldn't you have a living, breathing poster presentation? You could have video in it. You could have whatever you wanted, anything you could imagine that was on a computer. Uh, It could be clickable. You could have a mouse. It'd be interactive. I love the idea of it. The thing I think that would prevent the size conference that we saw, they had 
literal acres of posters. I mean, I tried to walk the entire thing and it took me a long time. And it was, you know, there are people on the front and back of each stand. So I just can't picture to myself where they're going to store all those TV screens. Um, so I think the paper poster is probably going to exist for a little bit longer. But I love what you're saying. I think that's where it's going to head. Yeah, I'd be curious to know if others have seen that at conferences they've been to. I agree with you, Dan. I think there could be a scaling issue at some point, <laughs> you know, with uh, with too many posters. But I agree. I think for, you know, for places maybe like where I work, Dan, where we have in one place, we have lots and lots of scientific presentations. It might make sense to invest in that infrastructure where it's a manageable size. And um, I totally agree. But I've seen lots of examples, um, especially as an attendee, of doing it this way and talking to presenters. There's really a lot of advantages, too. Um, and you're right, Dan. There's really cool uh, – there's an interactive component where if you're going over a figure, you can just touch it and it blows up to a larger size Um, So you can more easily show it to folks who are looking at your poster. And also video can embed right in there, too, which is much more difficult on a paper poster. And we're going to get to how people are trying to solve that with a paper poster a little bit later on, Josh. But before we get there, I think the whole point of a poster is a visual representation of your research that you are able to talk a, a viewer through. And so the next set of advice is really focused on how do you make your poster visual? How do you get the uh, attendee focused on the visual aspects, telling that story visually, and how to use images in an effective way? So take a listen to this. Hello, my name's Sam from Temple University. So my one point of advice would be that the poster should be understandable without you being present. To do that via, of course, words, but also the cartoon animations and data itself. My name is Leah Pittman, so my greatest advice to anyone trying to make a poster is to make your own figures and to spend a lot of time on them. That way they look great, they're easily identifiable by people passing by, pleasing to the eye. That's like the number one thing, nobody wants to walk past a poster that's busy, that has different styles of of graphics. You kind of want everything to look like it came from the same source. I see. So if you cobble them together from other sources, they may look disjoint and and like they're from different sources. So what software are you using to put these together? Because your your illustrations are beautiful. Thank you. So I'm using mainly Adobe Illustrator. Which is a skill. There's a a learning curve there. And, And how did you learn that software? So I had my colleagues in the lab help me. There's also plenty of free tutorials online on YouTube and written. You can also, if you don't have the money to do Adobe Illustrator, there's a bunch of free alternatives like GIMP. Fire Alpaca. I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I'm Sarah Yu. I'm a postdoc in St. Jude. And my biggest advice is highlight your images and give very clear legends for each of your figures. Because if you're not here and I come by, I still want to learn from your poster. I want to know what each of your figures mean. And always include an abstract. Lots of people don't, and I feel like that's important. What do you think is missing if they don't have the abstract? It's just they don't have the summary? Yeah, I feel like if I want to go through the full poster, the abstract is what pulls me in, gives me a little bit of background, gives me a little bit of a teaser as to what I'm going to look for in the rest of the poster. So I think that's really interesting. Do you think that they decide to stop here based on the title? How do they know that this is research related to what they want? Title is the first one, but I do find myself being drawn to posters with very nice pictures. And especially if you have a good model, that is also always easy to get a quick idea of what the poster is about. 
and it also draws me in. A pretty model is always a good thing. Hi, my name is Loida Morales. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Michigan, and my advice for students making posters is use BioRender for diagrams. And can you say what BioRender is? I don't think I've ever heard of it. It's a website that helps you make either diagrams for publications or presentations, talks, anything like that. And it also has a poster template as well. That's awesome. And that's, uh, I just spoke to somebody who gave the piece of advice that you should have a model. You should have a drawing in cartoon form of what you're studying. Yeah. And you've got a great one here. Yeah. It looks like endosomes forming. And you made this all in BioRender. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Hey, Dan, we had another Adobe Illustrator fan. I think it's a really powerful software. If you can learn it as a graduate student, especially when it's free, uh, it was free. I don't know if it's still free for universities, Josh, but when I was there, students and faculty could get access to Illustrator for free, which is an extremely expensive piece of software. Uh, learn it. It's really powerful. But again, the juice, the juice and the squeeze, uh, there may be a trade-off. Yeah, and you know, for some folks, if that's your thing, um, where I think sometimes, like if you've worked with other software like Illustrator or other Adobe software, or you're just, that comes easy to you to learn software like that, it may be a great way to go. But I think like a lot of things we talk about on the show, Dan, your time is very valuable as a graduate student. So just because this other person you heard of uses Adobe Illustrator, don't fall in the trap of thinking like, well... Somebody told me that's the best, so I guess I need to spend an extra 12 hours trying to do the same thing on Illustrator that I could have done on PowerPoint, which I know how to use, in five minutes, right? So do what works best for you. And we heard about a lot of different tools that folks are using out there. The sort of standout tool to me, the one I heard several times, was BioRender. And Josh, I put the link in the show notes. You can check that out. Uh, you can check, click on the microbiology section just so you have a sense of what they're talking about. And you will see that it's, it looks a lot like clip art, but they're kind of selected images that are for biologists by biologists. You can resize things. Um, so if you click in the microbiology section, there's a cell, somebody adds a macrophage, they add a receptor, they add a Petri dish with some colonies in it. And these are all, you know, these are all clip arts or images that are available within the software. So you don't have to go searching through 300 different Google image searches trying to find something that works for your presentation. And the nice thing is, and one of the pieces of advice I heard is, getting all of those images to look like they're from the same source really ties the presentation together. It adds some cohesion. And so I think using a tool like BioRender gives you that out of the box. And you don't have to try to match the kind of pencil drawn style over here and the 3D rendering over here, which looks really messy and looks like kind of an amateur presentation. Or here's the figure the postdoc made 14 years ago. And then here's the one the other grad student made exactly last year. And here's one I put together last night in my hotel room. Yeah, looking at this BioRender site, Dan, this looks really cool. I mean, their tagline, create professional science figures in minutes, sign up free. Those are all uh, things that sound good to me. Yeah, so, and I think there is some payment program, and I think it depends on how and where you present the images. But for a lot of the people I talked to, it sounded like they were able to use the software for free. So that's definitely worth checking into. It's biorender.com. Yeah, or tell your lab. Maybe this might be something your lab might want to invest in. And we are not sponsored by BioRender, by the way. But call us. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, 
the next section that I want to talk about is really it's harkening back to your idea about presenting on a screen, making something visual and interactive, maybe a video. And I wanted to talk about how people are using QR codes to link their static presentation to something more dynamic and to link it back to themselves so that people can stay in touch. Uh, take a listen to this. Hi, this is Phil Nelson. So uh, my little soundbite about posters is make sure you've got a QR code on your poster because that helps people to find your, you later on. Make sure you don't have too many words on your poster and that the words that you do have are big enough. And take your best graphics and present them to best advantage. And then you'll have a story that you can step through during that grueling hour and a half that you have to do. <laughs> Thank you so much. My name is David Carpio. I'm an undergraduate at the University of Richmond. So for our poster, we have live imaging cells and we wanted to be able to display that, that images and videos that we took. So what we did was we used QR codes and placed them in the middle of our poster and you're able to scan it with the camera. And once that's done, you can go into a Google Drive that has, contains the video of the live image cells and play them and replay them and view them as you look at our presentation. You can take them with you and even though the poster is static, my phone isn't, and that's awesome. Thank you for the advice. Do you have any other tips you want to share? Um, I could, yeah. No, I just think it, it kind of helps people visualize what's going on a lot, a lot better. I know in previous symposiums I've presented, and people kind of seem a little bit confused, and then once they see the actual protein like going through the filament or the filopodia, then they're like, oh, okay, now I kind of get it. So it's, I, I think it's really cool to like kind of help people understand what's going on a little bit better to kind of help convey what we found. For people with live cell imaging, it's just not the same in a photo. And, and to see things move is, is transformative. So now you've brought that to a poster. That's awesome. I love this, Dan. Um, you know, everyone is carrying a phone around in their pocket these days. So why not utilize that technology for, for your own professional pursuits? They can, I love the idea that somebody who comes to my poster can take my image of a you know, macrophage eating a cancer cell with them. And all they had to do is scan it. And, and they're not only connected to me, because now they're on my website, but they're connected to that scientific data that I was trying to give them. And they can take it to the next person. And maybe that makes a contact for me. So it's really cool to be able to, in their own phone, take your research with them. Totally, Dan. And I don't think anyone directly mentioned this, but I believe, you know, gone are the days or, or phasing out are the days of trading the business card, the physical business card. And I think the pandemic Nobody talked about that. The, I think the, the pandemic may have been the nail in the coffin for the business card. <laughs> I think it was on its way out previously. But I think there are other ways you can do that with a QR code. You can, um, you can share your contacts, not just at your poster, but as you're walking around a conference, I imagine there are ways you can utilize QR codes um, to to share share your contact information with folks you want to connect with. You know, it's interesting because last week we talked about taking a pencil and paper and taking notes and writing down somebody's email address. And I certainly wrote all those things down on paper. I didn't do a great job of capturing it digitally. And... I wonder if we're in this space where the technology exists. We could have done it, but it wasn't front and center for how I interacted. I know the vendors all had a scanner. They could scan badges. But I think the access to the data on the badge, even though my phone could have scanned that same thing, the data behind it is not available unless you pay for it as a vendor. So I think there's 
there are barriers there, but I don't think they're technological barriers. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think that is actually an unfortunate part of the way these conferences typically operate because you're right. I've been on the other side as a vendor before and we pay money to be able to scan badges and then save all those contacts into a spreadsheet that we can, you know, follow up and utilize when we get back home. But as an attendee, you don't really have the opportunity to access the same digital technology, which is really kind of a shame. So it really is up to you to piecemeal figure out how you're going to um, collect contact information at a conference. You know, I can tell you, Dan, one of the things that I do really a lot in life, <laughs> but um, that I do with, if I take, if I write down people's contact information or I collect a business card, I know that I will misplace that piece of paper or that 100%. business card or it'll be crumpled up in my pocket so I, what I try to do is I'll snap a photo of it on my phone because maybe like many people, all of my photos are stored in a cloud somewhere. They're never deleted unless I actively choose to delete them. So I always know that I can go back and find it um, in my camera roll, um, in, my, in my photo collection um, on my devices. So that, that's one tip is just take a photo of the physical thing and then you can toss it in the trash without worrying about it. I think that's great. And maybe that's what I should have been doing while the vendors were scanning people's name tags. I probably could have just taken a picture of a name tag. I don't know how weird that would be as an interaction. May I photograph your name tag, please? But I've done that before, Dan. I have totally done that. Yeah. And people usually in the moment don't think it's weird. <laughs> if you say, so I can remember this conversation, you know. Right. Tends to not be weird. Okay, well, there's... There's there's my next piece of advice. Next time I go to a scientific conference, I will try to remember that. Uh, with my microphone in hand, already annoying the person, I'm going <laughs> to ask if I can take a picture of their name tag. Josh, the last uh, section of advice is really about crafting a story. Your poster is storytelling. You're trying to convince somebody of something that you found. You're trying to help them along your scientific journey. And doing that means cutting out information that is not valuable to that story progress. And it means thinking about your research in maybe a different way. And so take a listen to these interviews. My name is Maria. I'm an undergraduate student at Davidson College. And some advice that I would offer is to include more kind of pictures and figures rather than a lot of text because it makes it easier for the audience to see kind of like the data and take the main takeaways. And then as for presenting, just practice and be confident, like you know your stuff. So yeah, just don't overdoubt. And do you walk people through those figures that you put up? Yes, I usually walk them through it and kind of like what they're showing and the main takeaways from them because sometimes seeing them and not knowing what the project is about can be hard. But I would definitely recommend that it helps when you're presenting as well. So It is a visual medium, so more, more pictures is better. Thank you. Hello, my name is Agustin Rabino. I'm from the University of Toledo in the Garcia Matalab. And one key piece of advice when making a poster, I will say, is Think of the story you want to say and try to strip it down from unnecessary information, right? Whenever I start doing a poster, I might end up having a lot of information there, but you want to be concise so you don't overwhelm your spectator. So you have to throw things away. You have to leave out things that are exciting and interesting maybe, but they're not part of the story. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. I think you can convey whatever you want to say. You want to focus more on the visual aspects, at least in our lab. We do a lot of heavy quantification sometimes, and we have a lot of graphs. 
attached to one image. But sometimes you need to leave those out to make maybe your image a little bit bigger, if you can. Visual representations are always better when trying to convey an idea. People will believe images, not your graph. And your poster is very clean. I can tell that you, you probably had to leave some things out, but it's very clear how the, the data flows. So I appreciate that advice. Thank you. Thank you. I love it, Dan. This is probably the biggest piece of advice that I give to students when when talking about putting together a poster or really a presentation of any kind is it can be so tempting when you're giving that presentation, you want to impress people and you want to say, okay, the way I'm going to impress people is I'm going to put in all the data that I've collected over the last year. And then they're going to think this is awesome science, but it's actually the opposite. That's true. You know, the most effective presentations you can give are those that tell a cohesive, logical, tight story. And sometimes to do that, you have to you have to focus and cut some things. And it sounds like these people that you talked to really had that in mind when they were putting their own posters together. I think it's the hardest part of design. It's taking something really good and leaving it out. And we all struggle with it. And if you were to if I were to look at your poster, Josh, I would say oh, this figure makes no sense in this story. Get rid of it. But when you looked at your own story, you'd say, but that's so, that's, that experiment took me so long and it was really beautiful the way it came out. And I'd say, okay, I don't know anything about how hard it was. I just know that it doesn't fit in the narrative. And so I think having somebody else look at your poster and say, you know, track the story from the introduction all the way through to the conclusion and say, you know, this is great. You know, figure four is great but I don't see what it has to do with this narrative. So being able to step outside of yourself and, and recognizing everybody feels this way. Everybody has to kill something beautiful in their own story that they wish they didn't. Put it somewhere else. It'll get its air, but don't put it in this poster. Dan, you're so right. And especially the piece about involving others to give you feedback on whether or not you're telling a coherent story. Uh, just this past week, Dan, I was... Uh, working with some former colleagues who were putting a grant application together. And this is a grant for a program that I was part of for many years up until recently. And so I had written this very grant um, twice before over the last uh, number of years. However, this time was the first time that I was purely just giving feedback and they were the ones who had prepared the grant. Yeah. And I can remember it was so hard back in those days to get it in the page limit because I felt like all these words were so important and I just couldn't leave any of them out. However, now on the other side where I was coming in as a reviewer, Dan, I was deleting paragraphs. I was taking full sections out at will. <laughs> and leaving on the cutting room floor. And I was reflecting how much easier it was for me to be objective and to do that when I emotionally took myself away from being the one who was actually writing it up in the first place. So I can understand how hard that is. And this was really insightful, really towards exactly your point, uh, the importance of sometimes bringing someone in who is not so close to it, <laughs> to those words, uh, they can help you figure out things to delete. Because it can be hard. It's, it's really impossible when you are the creator to kill it. And uh, I, that's a great story, Josh. Looking at the same document from both sides of the reviewer and the creator, and you were just ready to, to cut whole sections out because they weren't relevant. They were not adding to the, to the argument, to the, the narrative, the point that the person was trying to make. You could look at that and say, yeah, that's great, but so what? And to them, it felt very personal and, and 
very precious. And so I think we've got to, I, I think we have to have somebody else look at it because personally, we're not going to be able to see it, let alone cut it out. And I think that's really the beauty of scientific communication in all its forms as you go through your career, maybe with the exception of a prelim exam or, or something like that. But whether you're, whether you're putting a poster together or a talk or you're writing a manuscript draft or even writing your thesis, you're always, you should hopefully always be getting feedback from multiple people who are helping you refine it. You're helping you refine that document. You're not just on your own uh, putting that together. It really is a collaborative effort. It sure is. In its best form, it's collaborative. So that was the that was the data I could gather from poster presenters themselves at ASCB 2022, Josh. Hopefully that helps our listeners put together their poster. Certainly there is more we could say. Certainly our listeners have more ideas about how to present posters. So tell them how they can get in touch, Josh. Sure thing, Dan. If you have a question or a topic idea, we would love to hear it. You can send us an email at podcast at hellophd.com. You can tweet to us at hellophd. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love getting your feedback and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money, and thanks so much for the ongoing support from all of our patrons. Dan, last thing I have to ask you, did you have fun talking to everyone? You know, I did, and everybody was so generous with their time, I thought they would all shy away from talking to a, a big microphone. You know, the microphone has the the uh, pop filter on the end. It looks kind of intimidating, but everybody was just so welcoming and, and so engaging and willing to not just talk about their research, but to talk about their process. And that's what I appreciated so much. Agree, Dan. Thanks to everyone who spoke with us. We don't have all the answers, but our hope with this show is to connect you with all the other folks who are figuring things out as they go. So hopefully this was helpful. All right, Josh, and thanks again for the trip down memory lane, the trip down Kentucky Bourbon Trail, and hopefully we'll get another chance to visit. I sure hope so. All right, Dan, we'll see you next time.